Commenting on the importance of teachers, Albert Einstein once said, It is the supreme art of the teacher to awaken joy in creative expression and knowledge. And Bill Gates once said, Technology is just a tool. In terms of getting the kids to work together and motivating them, the teacher is the most important. There's no doubt that teachers are essential in our society. They impart our values, cultural norms, and teach skills needed for living in society. It's teachers who contribute, in large part, to the development of our youth into fully grown and mature adults. They have a lot of sway when it comes to showing others how to walk the way. It's for this very reason that James says that God will be a harsher judge to teachers than to the rest of us. The bottom line, because teachers play such a vital role in helping people walk the way, the words ought to be words of blessings rather than curses. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm Father Dustin, your host, and we are continuing our journey, our walk, through the Epistle of St. James. So we're ready for Chapter 3, but just as a reminder, James here is advocating that faith without works is dead. In other words, to be a truly faithful person, you have to walk the way. And I want all my listeners to get this, so I'm going to repeat it, so please stick with me. What James means by works is not just anything you do. Sometimes we think that we can't save ourselves by anything that we do. But James isn't entering into that sort of discussion. That's not the theological debate at James's time. What James means by works, and this is the same thing that Paul means by works, is observances of the law. So these are the outward signs that show that you're Jewish or Judean. Include circumcision, keeping Sabbath, and keeping kosher laws. So these are outward signs that you are Jewish. And what both James and Paul are saying is that these outward signs, these observances of the law, have nothing to do with your salvation. They have nothing to do with making you a child or a person of God, a person of Israel. Instead, what James means by faith without works is dead is he's referring to works that include moral obligations. So this is being a good person, having mercy on the poor, being just and righteous, those sorts of things. And this is exactly what Paul is also talking about. When Paul is talking about works, he's talking about the observances of the law. But then later in his letters, he goes on to advocate for walking the way by following a moral law. And as Paul puts it at the end of Corinthians, for example, is that one must have love. And this love must be demonstrated by the way you treat others. It's what you do. The New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan and the archaeologist Jonathan Reed in their book In Search of Paul suggested that agape, should be translated as share instead of love. And if you translate agape as share, 
then you have a better understanding of what the New Testament is talking about when it uses the word agape. Because oftentimes, when we translate it as love, we think about how we feel towards others. But in the New Testament, love has less to do with feeling and more to do with action. So for those who have read the five love languages, you know that some of the love languages include showing love to your spouse by doing things, acts of service, or saying things that make them feel good, or giving them gifts. All of these things are actions, and this is a better idea of what love means. Now that we've refreshed what James is talking about, that he's advocating how to walk the way, faith without works is dead, let's continue on with chapter 3, because he slightly switches topics. So let's get into it and see what's happening. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. It seems like James has switched gears here. He's gone to advocating what it means to walk the way, what faith actually looks like, and how faith is demonstrated through mercy, to talking about tongues and teachers. And you may be wondering, what's going on here? Why would James mention teachers? Of course, in our society, we have the saying, those who can't do, teach. I don't think James would agree with that, because he says, those who teach will have a stricter judgment. And I think that's because normally, if you make mistakes, the mistake is yours. And the only person that's led astray is yourself. But I think what James is getting at is that if a teacher makes a mistake, it gets compounded, because any mistake that the teacher makes is bound to be replicated by his disciples, his students. And they then will carry on that mistake and possibly teach it to more disciples, who in turn teach it to more disciples, and pretty soon you've got a generational mistake, the sins of the fathers. For this reason, teachers have to be more careful about what they say and how they teach. It may be easy to dismiss what people say. Maybe you don't agree with James. Maybe you don't agree with me that when a teacher makes a mistake, the disciples will carry on that mistake. And you say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So it doesn't matter what a teacher says, or it's not as important as James is making it out to be. But he gives a few examples here. He gives the example of a bridle with bits in the mouths of horses. And I know, in general, we're not an agricultural society, so maybe we aren't familiar with that image. But we've all seen cowboys on horses, and they've got the reins, right? And with the reins, they can steer the horse as they're riding it, make it turn left or make it turn right. And those reins are connected to a headgear that's on the horse's face, and there is literally a piece of metal that goes through the horse's mouth, so the horse can't 
close its mouth completely. And so when you pull on the reins, you are literally pulling on that bit in the horse's mouth, making it turn its head. And that's how it knows which direction to go. And even though that bit is a very small tool, it directs the entire horse. And he's saying the tongue is something similar. Even though the tongue may be a small tool in your mouth, it can direct and do a lot of damage. He uses a similar example with ships. So we know that ships have great big sails at this time, and the wind comes and pushes them, and that's where the energy comes from to make them go forward, is through the wind. But yet, on the back of the boat, in the water, is this very small rudder. And if you turn the rudder, you can make the boat go whatever direction you want it to go in. Same today. Even though we have engines that may push boats forward, you have a small rudder that drives it. And if we want to extend this metaphor, it's the same thing with planes. Today, planes have these great big engines and jets that make them go. But if you look out on the wings, it's a very small piece of the wing that directs the plane, makes it go up and down, or on the back, that makes it go right or left. And so even though the tongue may be a small thing, and you may think that words really don't matter, James is saying they do. They matter a lot. And so we have to be very careful about what we say. And I think not only about what we say in conversations, because we can think about gossip and damaging people's reputations, or making them feel bad, or ending relationships, but also as teachers, what we teach. And I think this is probably what James has in mind, especially teaching of Scripture, and how we teach Scripture. Not just what we say, but how we say it. So Addison Hodges Hart, in his book, The Letters of James, a pastoral commentary, has a very interesting historical insight into this matter. He's just postulating the historical circumstances. Archaeologists and historians don't actually know what is going on here, so it's just an assumption on his part. But I think it's a very interesting one, and I think it has a lot of possibility. And as we know, James and Paul did not get along. And there's that famous incident in Antioch where Paul is preaching his gospel, a gospel of inclusion that both Jews and Gentiles, both free people and slaves, and both males and females can sit down together at the table of fellowship. And we can think about this perhaps as the communion, as the Eucharist. And Paul's gospel is that in Christ, we've all been freed and we all sit down together as children of God. And we know from this incident in Antioch that Peter is there and he's agreeing with Paul. But then at some point, we know some people from the Church of Jerusalem, which is led by James, show up, and they're able to divide the community. According to them, you first have to be circumcised, there's those observances of the law again, in order to be able to share in table fellowship. And so they divide the community between those Christians who have been circumcised and those Christians who haven't. And this is a division, a schism within this community. And in Galatians, Paul writes to them and just chews them out. He says that they're proclaiming another gospel, and this is wrong. Now, what we've read from James, I don't think James would be advocating for Christians to be circumcised. Although, at some point, there was a historical incident in Antioch, and we know how that played out. But it does seem, even if James 
and Paul are more on the same page than it seems from this incident, it does seem that there is still some sort of rift between James and Paul. And so when Paul responds to the incident in Antioch in the book of Galatians, he responds in a very hot way. He comes off as a very angry, grumpy grandfather sort of image. And what Addison Hodges Hart suggests is that James is rebuking Paul here a little bit. He's rebuking the way that Paul handled the incident. And James is saying, perhaps that's not the best way to teach. You have to be careful with your words. Perhaps raking people over the coals isn't the way to go. So that's what Hart suggests, is that James is responding to Paul's attitude, not necessarily what Paul was teaching. In fact, Addison Hodges Hart says that Paul's gospel is spot on, and it seems like James is agreeing with him, that there's no disagreement there. But it's the way that Paul handled it, that as teachers, we have to be held at a higher level of accountability in the way that we teach. Now, you can agree with that or not agree with it. That's up to you. You can read Galatians, you can go back through James, and you can decide where you want to fall in this sort of debate. I think it's interesting that that heart here connects James chapter 3 with this ongoing historical reality and this relationship between Paul and James. So with that, let's continue on and see where James goes. So this is starting just before verse 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, and the tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity, it stains the whole body, it sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. So I'm going to stop there, and I just want to make a quick comment on the word hell here. So in the original Greek, the word hell is Gehenna, and I'm sure all of my listeners have heard the differences or have heard people talk about hell as Hades, hell as Gehenna, or hell as the realm of the dead, something like this. So the word used for hell here is Gehenna. We don't have a whole lot of archaeological evidence. What it really means is the Valley of Hinnon, is what Gehenna means, the Valley of Hinnon. And there seems to be a valley just outside of Jerusalem that was a garbage heap. And it seems that people would take out their garbage and burn it there. It also seems from literary evidence in the Old Testament, especially from Isaiah, that it was also a place of sacrifice for the pagan gods. This is a reference to the Canaanites sacrificing babies to the gods. Is possibly a place or a reference to the place where the Canaanites would sacrifice their babies and then burn the bodies. And Isaiah also talks about the burning of bodies in the Valley of Hinnon. In the first century, the Pharisees, or the rabbis, were divided into two schools of thought. And one school of thought that the Valley of Hinnon was a place of punishment, but yet purification. And they agreed that you weren't there more than 12 months after death. So it was kind of a, I don't know if you'd call it a purgatory, but maybe that's the way to think about it, that you would go there and there'd be some sort of cleansing fire that would purify you. And Paul seems to suggest this in 1 Corinthians when he talks about building on a foundation that will be tested by fire. And Paul seems to have this idea of purification in mind as well. The other school of thought is that this is a place of destruction, that if you were sent to this Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna, you were destroyed and burned up, and this was the end. You ceased to exist. 
It's hard to tell where the New Testament authors would have fallen, or what exactly they would have thought about the Valley of Hinnon. We know that they're obviously familiar with it. The evangelists have Jesus referencing Gehenna, and obviously here James is using Gehenna, but we don't know exactly what they would have meant by it, other than here obviously there's this connection with fire, although we don't know if it's a fire purification or a fire of destruction. The point that James is trying to make here is that the tongue can act like this valley of Hinnon. It can set things ablaze. It can set things on fire. And in this case, that's not a good thing. We would rather not be set on fire. So here's continuing on with verse 7. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. So I want to pause there and talk about the word curse. So the word that James uses for curse is kataraome, and it means to doom, to curse. And this is a different word than the word that Paul uses in his letter to Galatians for curse because he curses those who are preaching that other gospel. And the word that Paul uses there is anathema, where we get our English word for anathema. And of course, anathema has become very famous within theological circles. Each of the the councils of the church, the ecumenical councils, oftentimes would end the council with these anathemas. They would curse those who didn't agree with them. And we know that This often led to violence. People were put to death because they didn't agree with the official stance of the church. And this could be exactly why James is warning teachers to control their tongues. So Paul uses the word anathema to curse those who don't agree with him. And we see that the church follows that tradition. They continue to curse or anathematize those who don't agree with them, sometimes with violent ends. And it seems like James's warning about not being careful with your tongue can start a fire. So if Addison Hodges' heart is correct, and he has Paul in mind when he's talking about teachers and tongues, it seems like his prediction came true, that the temperament of Paul, if James is seeing Paul as being too harsh, rather than lovingly teaching people, cursing them instead, it seems like the church perhaps has followed in that tradition, and James's warning has come true. And that's the way that heart sees it. So continuing on, starting with verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can saltwater yield fresh. There's a difference, according to James, between blessing and cursing. Both come from the mouth, but James says... They're not supposed to come from the same mouth. Either your mouth should be a blessing to others, or it should be a curse. And he gives some examples that a fig tree can't bear grapes, and a grapevine can't bear figs. There's a contradiction there. It just can't be so. To help you understand better, let's look at the word for blessing in Greek. So the word for blessing is evlogia, which comes from two words. The first part, the ev which if you look at it, it looks like you, this is where we get the word for Eucharist in English, um, means good or well. And then the last part comes from the word for logos, which is the Greek word for 
word. So literally, what evlogia means is good speech or good words. And so to bless something is to say something good about it, to praise it. It's a laud, if you will. It makes no sense, according to James, for the same mouth to say good things about some people and bad things or, or curses about others. It just doesn't go together. And as I said, James may have Paul in mind here, where he's praising some, the Philippians, for example, Paul praises, and then he's cursing others. So the example is when he's cursing those who come from the Church of Jerusalem, the epistle to the Galatians. So we'll end there, and we see again that James is talking about what it means to walk the way. Even though he may be talking specifically about teachers and their tongues, to walk the way includes the entirety of everything we do, especially for teachers who are supposed to teach us how to walk the way. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that you have a blessed week, and for those beginning Lent, uh, uh, much strength to all of you. God bless.